having shown us the future glory of the church in verses 1 through 5. The Apostle John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, has turned to convey to us the visions that were given him of the future historical judgment of the wicked. That would be the end time judgment, not end, E-N-D, but end time, I-N. The end time judgment, which will be the immediate precursor to the eternal punishment of the wicked. And just as a reminder, in verses 6 and 7, we heard the first angel announcing the judgment through legal adjuration, solemnly commanding the people of the earth, the wicked, to give glory to God. In verse 8 last week, we heard this judgment declared upon Babylon, that is the city of man, the world system, as it opposes God and His Christ and His people, that world system which opens the door and facilitates every idolatrous notion that enters into the minds of men, that, that world system that makes it easy and fun and acceptable and pretty and, and delightful and attractive to, to not only engage in this iniquity, but also to celebrate it and, and pretend that it's normal. Now in verses 9 to 12, the historical judgment gives way to a description of the eternal judgment that awaits the wicked. And so that's what we're going to consider today, the eternal punishment that awaits the wicked. But we have to always keep in mind that this letter was written to churches. The, the revelation of Jesus Christ is a letter for the church in all places, in all times until Christ returns. And we have to remember that the churches, these saints of John's day, were suffering there were attacks coming within the church and there were attacks coming from without the church. Pressures from false teachers within, pressures from pagan idolatry from without. Their inward spiritual allegiance to Christ was being put to the test as well as their outward practical devotion to Christ was being put to the test. Saints who didn't have the liberty of saying, well, I'll act this way, but in my heart this is true. Or, or though in my heart I feel this, I'll act this way. They were being put into the, 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 the crucible and pressured at every point so that there, there, any, any fakers, any false converts were easily squished out of the, the, the confines of the church because of all of the pressures that were being placed upon the church. Remember the underlying principle in all of that is that war between Satan and Christ. As we've seen in His death and resurrection, the dynasty of Satan suffered a death blow. That is the death and resurrection of Christ. Satan knows that he's been defeated. Because Satan hates Christ, he hates the church. Because Satan hates Christ, he hates the followers of Christ. Because the followers of Satan hate Christ, they hate the church. And so the devil, the enemy of our souls, has mounted an all-out attack upon the church with deception and substitution being his primary means of attack. And the dragon, the serpent, the devil, we have seen has his, his helpers, his specific means by which he offers these substitutes and draws men away from their allegiance to God. First, he employs... Beast number one, the world powers or the kingdoms of men in their opposition to God's people. We would probably call this very simply the civil powers or, or 
rulers and authorities. Alongside of those positions of power, the dragon employs beast number two, which we will see later is referred to as the false prophet. This beast is the spirit of the age, the underlying spiritual philosophy, which leads the world to engage in particular modes of worship as they ascribe their allegiance to these kingdoms of men. And then we saw Babylon, the city of man, the entire world stage in which this idolatry is played out. Babylon is the world that we live in that facilitates this worship in which men and women manifest their allegiance to the kingdoms of men and in so doing they bring themselves further and further under the dominion of the dragon. Satan does not come on the scene and say, Hello, my name is Satan and I'm running for for president. I'm running for, for prime minister. I'm running for king. That's not how it works. That would be easy to avoid. Avoid the, the red guy with the, with the pitchfork. That would be easy. That's not how it works. He employs these things in our world that are uh, some of them necessary, like civil authority, like functioning in a society, those things which are required of us. He employs those and offers up a deception to draw men away from God. But as we saw last week, Babylon will fall. The whole thing is going to be reduced to nothing. And all the adherents adherents to this system are going to receive in themselves the personal infliction of justice. All who opposed God's people, all who laid these stumbling blocks before the people of God, everyone who participated in any way in these schemes, it's going to fall. They're all going to be personally judged. And that's what we see today. That judgment which was announced and then declared is now applied. Justice will be served upon the enemies of the church. That's the angle from which this is being presented. And so if we think of it in terms of three major headings, judgment announced, judgment declared, then we come to the third main heading of this section, the judgment applied. And as we walk through this, remember the the picture that I gave you two weeks ago An army has announced an attack upon a city. Then they build their siege works around the walls, effectively capturing the city. Then they scale the walls of this city and enter into it to apply their judgment upon that city. And now we can imagine that as the soldiers come down the walls inside the city and their feet hit the ground, there is a commanding officer explaining what is to happen to each and every individual in this city that is being conquered, this city of Babylon. That's the picture. The first thing we see here in the text are the subjects of this judgment. Now the subjects of this judgment are a group that we've already seen in this fourth vision. Notice... In in the section, if we took verse 9 and verse 11 sort of as bookends, with verse 12 being an application of it, then this section is bookended by a description of particular people. Verse 9, another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand. Those are the subjects. The end of verse 11, these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. 
We've already seen this group one time, I said, in, in chapter 13. Verses 16 and 17, we see that description. All, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave. These are the ones who are going to be marked on the right hand or on the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. And who did we say made up that group? This is simply the unbelieving world. Those who worship the beast in the image of the beast. Those devoted to the dragon. What was the mark? Remember, it's the counterpart to the Holy Spirit given to God's people, which marks and seals the people of God. This mark was is their internal spiritual devotion to the dragon. It's not something physical. It's not a microchip. It's not a tattoo. It's not a vaccine. It's not something that you can see other than you can watch it as people display their worship of Satan through their interaction with Babylon. In other words... Nobody's saying, come line up and get the mark. If we have the Word of God, we can go out into our society and identify those already marked. So the subjects of this historical judgment and the eternal punishment that will follow the historical judgment are the wicked. Elsewhere in Scripture called unbelievers or the unrepentant or we we could simply say the lost world non-christians in the proverbs they are the foolish they are the sluggard they are the unrighteous this would apply to the openly hardened scoffer of Christ as well as the kind and tolerant pagan the elderly as well as the young the belligerent, as well as the kind-hearted, the greedy businessman, as well as your gentle neighbor who lets you borrow his tools, the Saturday night street walker, as well as the Sunday morning pew sitter. Just like God looks not upon outward appearance, but upon the hearts of men, so His judgment does not care for outward appearances. His judgment probes into the recesses of every human heart, And so, all who perish without Christ, of all stripes, of all kinds, of all personality types, they will all suffer this punishment, this very same punishment. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, and you stay in that condition, I want you to listen very closely. What I've done this week is is I've tried to spend some time in, in deep thought as well as meditation on many passages of Scripture and I've scoured dictionaries and thesauruses in an attempt to somehow use some breadth of the English language to describe to you your future. Because I want you to know what is in store for those who do not come to Christ. Not for those who merely verbalize a confession, but those who don't truly in their heart come. I know that everybody in this room would say, I'm a Christian. I know that. I'm not saying, well, this is going to be for those who verbally say, well, I'm not a Christian. No, this is for everyone who dies apart from Christ, regardless of profession. If you're not a Christian, if you've not been united to Christ by His Holy Spirit, 
If you've never been made a new creature by God, then this passage is describing your punishment. What's going to happen to you in 10, 20, 30 years, 40 years, all of us within 100 years will be determined whether we're going to be here or not. If you're not a Christian, listen. I want you to be prepared. I want you to know what's going to happen. If you are a Christian... Again, listen closely because I'm going to try to attempt to describe what exactly it was that caused the Lord Jesus Christ to sweat drops of blood in Gethsemane. I want to try to describe what it was that He endured in His soul and body in those dark hours on Golgotha for you and for me. You see, this works for the Christian and the non-Christian alike. The unbeliever ought to be warned about what is their future plight, but the Christian can hear all of the torments and the descriptions of God's wrath poured out on the sinner, and they can say, that's what my, my Savior endured. So listen. First, we see the specifics of this judgment. The worshiper of the beast, the lost of all types and kinds, It says, He will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of His anger. And He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. Now what first can we learn here about the the dispensation or the distribution of this punishment? Where does it come from? What exactly is it? What constitutes the torments, the the punishment of hell? Well, first notice its source. He, the unrepentant sinner, the lost, you, if you are not a Christian, also will drink the wine of God's wrath. Where does the punishment come from? What makes up hell? It comes from God. It is God's Wrath. The eternal punishment of the wicked is an ongoing work of the providence of God as He acts upon His creatures. Hebrews 10.31 says that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The punishment of the wicked is a falling into the hands of of God. His hands pointing to His strength, His working, His active engagement in the work of inflicting punishment. It is God Himself with whom you will have to do for all eternity. The living God. Hell is not a lifeless force of some sort of inanimate pain. It's the unrestrained hand of the living God actively working to pour out His essential indignation upon the bodies and souls of humans. The source is God. It's not a red devil poking people with a, with a, a pitchfork. The devil himself will be there with you. You will interact with God for all of eternity. In the present age, you might be able to brush off and ignore the movings of the Spirit. 
Pretend that God is not revealing Himself. Pretend that God is not pleading with you. Pretend that God is not really revealing things to you. Brush things out of your mind. But in eternity, there will be no question and no hiding. You will know I'm being dealt with by God forever. God is the source. Notice secondly, the substance. What, what, what constitutes the punishment? Well, it says the wicked, the lost will drink the wine of God's wrath. God's wrath. The word wrath means a violent eruption of emotion, specifically here of anger. Now, of course, we could argue and say, well, we know that in God there are no emotions like man. This is even worse. This is of the very essence of God's nature, His wrath. The violent eruption of God Himself. While the language of fire is used many times in Scripture, as we'll see, the horror of hell is not fire. You will wish that it were simply the fire that we have come to be acquainted with in this life. While you're there, you will wish, just give me some fire. I thought this was just going to be fire. It's worse than fire. Fire is a created element. Fire has limitations. But the torments of hell are of wrath, and namely the wrath that comes from out of God. Wrath is the violent eruption of God's justice emptied out upon the wicked. The wrath of God is God Himself dipping His hands in the blood and dirtying His hands with the judgment of the wicked as His perfect righteousness comes into conflict with sin. And there's no barrier. There's no no mediation left. The torment of hell is the outpouring of God Himself upon the wicked as if you had held your face over an erupting volcano of divine fury for all of eternity. The volcanoes, they erupt and they putter out. Hell hell doesn't putter out. To what degree should you expect this wrath to be poured out? The text says you will drink of the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of His anger. Full strength. Undiluted, unmixed, wrath with no mixture of any other trait of God except perhaps His eternality, His infinitude, His power. It's wrath, but it's not going to be mixed with patience. It's wrath, but it will not be mixed with mercy. Wrath, but it will not be mixed with love. It's pure, unadulterated, uncut wrath. Now we know from Scripture that men have experienced the wrath of God before. We read the story of the flood where God killed every living creature on the planet except for Noah and those in the ark with him. In the story of Korah's rebellion, the earth opens up and swallows a host of people. In Numbers 16, a plague broke out and killed 47,000 people. In 2 Samuel 24, God killed 70,000 people. We know that men have experienced and and watched some display of the wrath of God. We think of Sodom and Gomorrah and, and fire and brimstone raining out of heaven. People have seen it, experienced it. 
Some experience God's wrath right now, Romans 1 tells us. That the wrath of God is revealed from heaven right now upon the ungodliness of men in the fact that He simply hands them over. He gives them over to a debased mind. He lets them have their lusts. He lets them run after and pursue the things that they want. But what we're reading about here is different than all of that. It's different than the flood. It's different than the earth opening up and swallowing people. It's different than Sodom and Gomorrah. Because those were the very fringes of God's wrath. The outskirts of His ways. As Job tells us, in all that we've ever seen, all we've ever been able to perceive or see is the the edge of God's power. That's all we've seen. As if He brushed by and we saw the shadow of God's power as He was already gone. That's all we've seen. But Romans 9.22 says, What if God, desiring to show His wrath and make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? In other words, in hell, God's wrath is going to be poured out unmixed and undiluted for the very purpose of allowing God the opportunity to show the full force of it. And nothing's going to be held back. Hell is the eternal stage where God will finally be able to make a full display of His wrath. In hell, God will make His power, the full strength of His power known. We see smidgens of His power when it when it rains 10 inches in a day and people's homes are washed away and and the roads that we've been driving on for decades are washed away within a matter of hours, we see a piece of His power. But in hell, all of His power is going to be shown. Now we know, of course, that God is omnipotent. God has all power. He is pure, active power. And in hell, God's omnipotence is going to be shown specifically in the manner in which He pours His wrath down the throats of the wicked. Not an edge anymore, but for all eternity, all power will be displayed. There will be an unlimited, unbounded, complete pure, active, manifest energy of God focused like a laser beam for eternity on each and every individual sinner who never repented and believed upon the name of Christ. Every rebellious soul. The dispensation of punishment in hell is simply all of an infinite God in pure fury poured out upon finite creatures. We say, how could it be? God will make sure that that those creatures are able to sustain that for all of eternity. Next we see this description. What will hell be like? Of course, no one has ever gone there in this room that can come back and explain it to us, but we have many things in Scripture that describe this to us. The first word that we find here is the word torment. What will hell be like? It will be torment, agony, anguish, or torture. In Matthew 18, in the parable of the unforgiving servant, remember it says that that, that boss in his anger, it said that his master said, deliver him to the torturers 
In the ESV, it's translated jailers, but the word is torturers. Deliver that one over to those who will torture for eternity. It's torment, and this is a passive verb, which shows us that those in the torments of hell are being acted upon. They are being tormented by someone. You will be tormented by someone. Hell will be ongoing aggravated suffering at the hand of the Almighty. Torment. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus said that the rich man called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish. In this flame. Can you imagine being in so much anguish, so much torment, that a drop of water from someone else's finger would amount to relief, a bit of relief? It's torment. Another aspect of the torment of hell is found when it's described in Matthew 8 12 as being thrown into outer darkness. The torment of hell upon the soul is likened here to absolute, isolated abandonment with no light. No way to even look around and behold another. No way to feel any nearness or closeness. No companionship, no camaraderie, no unity, no friendship whatsoever. No longer have the opportunity to say, well, at least I'm not like that person. It's just utter darkness, utter pitch black desertion of the soul. Another part of that torment is described in Psalm eleven six when the psalmist prays that God would rain. In the ESV, it's translated coals of fire. The word is snares. Let him rain snares upon the wicked. A snare is a trap set to spring upon an unsuspecting victim to to catch you when you weren't ready for it. The torment of hell is like a downpour of eternally startling, appalling alarm for eternity. Just, Just alarmed, shocked, appalled. While men know that their actions deserve punishment... Their hearts and their minds and their imaginations cannot even begin to comprehend the torments of hell. And even, even as when I finish, you'll say, I can't comprehend it. For those who are turned into hell, the most endurable moment of your torment, I believe, will be the very first. It will be shocking. It will be filled with horror. It will startle you when you lift up your eyes in hell's fury. But I believe it will be, that first moment will be the most endurable because it will, for a brief instance, be mixed with unbelief. For a brief second, you'll have a moment's comfort that perhaps it's a nightmare. A moment of comfort that surely... This is not real. That surely it it wouldn't be said of me, she is in hell. Or he is in hell. Surely this this is not right. There's been a mistake. A a moment of comfort that, uh, that will amount to confusion. In that moment, as the as brief 
as the blink of an eye, the flames might be cooled simply by the thought that this can't be true. Surely this is not my place. And then moving forward from that split second will be only ever increasing anguish and torment like an eternal torrential monsoon of shocking snares forever. Just eternally appalled in horror, horrified. It will be torment. What will be the instrument of this torment? We've already seen it will be the wrath of God poured full strength into the cup of His anger. But here that wrath, as it is oftentimes in Scripture, is illustrated as being tormented with fire and sulfur. Fire being the instrument of pain and sulfur being the combustible gas that stokes the flames, that keeps them burning hot. Fire and sulfur. Now listen to what Isaiah says in Isaiah 30, 33. He says, For a burning place has been prepared. Indeed, for the king it is made ready. Its pyre made deep and wide with fire and wood in abundance. The breath of the Lord, like a stream of sulfur, kindles it. The torment and the source is God and His wrath. But it's illustrated as fire. Why? Is there anything, any other pain imaginable that we can, that we can even conceive of besides fire? We don't know. Because we get away from fire as quick as we can. Nobody's willing to stick their hand in the fire and rate this on a scale. There's nothing more natural, even from birth, than retracting from fire because it's so painful. If you look up a list of the the worst pains that human beings can feel, they're, they're mostly pains that we literally are able to endure, that people can go into and come out of and describe it. Nobody does that with fire. Even in in our temporal state, if you stay in fire long enough, it destroys the nerve endings so that it simply begins to consume your flesh and you don't even know it. We can't rate fire. There's nothing more painful than being burned with fire. But the image, remember, is meant to convey that hell is the most intense, instinctively repulsive, overwhelming pain that a human being can even comprehend. It's beyond our comprehension. Now the question obviously has to be asked, is hell a place of actual fire? Well, I would say first, I don't know because I've not been there. But secondly, I tend to think no, at least not in the way that we think of fire. Because fire as we know it would only torment the physical body. Hell is a place of torment that engulfs the whole man, body and soul, inside and out. Of course, that consideration shouldn't lead anybody to say, well, I guess it won't be as bad as I thought it was. I thought it was just going to be fire. But if it's not going to be actual fire, then maybe it's not going to be... No, it's far worse. Infinitely worse. Far worse than physical fire. As I said, you'll, you'll wish that you were in fire. Christ Himself in Mark chapter 9, verse 44, refers to hell as the unquenchable fire. 
And in verse 48, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Unquenchable fire. Now when I say the words quenched or unquenched, we typically think of thirst. Some sort of appetite, some sort of craving that must be fulfilled. So what do we learn here? Hell is an unquenchable fire. The torments of God's own fury poured out in an eternal craving for justice as God Himself is actively seeking to squeeze out every drop of justice that might be found from punishing a worm. The righteousness of God, even now, is thirsty for justice. And His wrath has been commissioned to execute vengeance on the wicked in order to satisfy this craving, this thirst that God has. And since you will remain in your rebellion, even in hell, that quest for justice will continue for all eternity. People don't go to hell and all of a sudden say, okay, okay, I I give up, I repent, and I believe the gospel. That's not what happens. God cannot be stopped. Hell is unquenchable fire. In Hebrews 10.27, we read of the fury of fire that will consume the adversaries or the fury made of or, or constituted of fire. The content of the fury is fire, torment. That's what hell's like. It's torment under the torturing pains and body of soul or body and soul of God's wrath. Notice also the placement of this punishment. The text says that these unbelievers will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Now in John chapter 5, the Lord Jesus tells us that the Father had given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. He will be the judge. And here we see that because His Because of His role as mediator between God and man, the Lamb of God who has taken away the sins of the world of His elect will also be the Lamb who visits the iniquities of men upon their own heads. They're going to be tormented in the presence of the Lamb. The one who was despised and rejected by men. The one who humbled Himself to the point of death, even the death of the cross for the sake of sinners. The one who endured such hostility from sinners in order to save sinners. The very one that you refuse to honor as Lord will be the one who oversees your punishment. Those who refuse to come to Christ in repentance and faith will suffer eternally in a lamb's hell reserved or created for devils. So we see its dispensation, we see its description Thirdly, we see its duration. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night. He's continuing to use the image of the fires of Gehenna, where they would burn trash outside of the the city of Jerusalem. The smoke of their torment. This is the sign that lets us, that teaches us about the duration of this punishment. Smoke. Smoke is a typical and essential byproduct of fire. And so what we're reading here is the byproduct of the torment of the wrath of God. Smoke shows us that something is being consumed. 
Smoke shows us that there is activity in the wood stove. Smoke manifests a devouring flame. It it lets us know this fire is still going. It's still burning. The text says the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest day or night. Non-stop, never ending, never ceasing under the active devouring wrath of God. He won't stop. Not it. He. God will not stop. They have no rest, day or night, no reprieve, no breaks because of God's power and infinitude. The torments of hell can never be extinguished. The image is almost as if God in His wrath is eternally chasing down men and women and yet they are eternally backed into a corner, unable to flee. It's just... All of eternity, God coming at you, and He won't stop. Matthew 13, 15, it's referred to as the fiery furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Hell is a furnace where you will be closed up and closed in with God, walled in on every side with God Himself, revealing Himself in flaming fury with no escape, no relief, no end. You can't see out. There is no out. Hell is an eternity of God coming at you in full, undiluted force of fury and power and never stopping, never finishing, never tapering tapering off, never deadening your senses so that you become numb to it, but always only ever shocking and alarming your soul forever and ever and ever. Every moment worse than the last. It just gets worse and worse. Matthew 25, 41, it's referred to as eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Hell is an eternal fire. When Isaiah is referring to God's awful presence, he asks, who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? That's our God. Everlasting burnings. As we learn in Hebrews, our God is a consuming fire. Hell is eternal, everlasting, with no rest. Why? Because our God is an eternal, all-consuming fire of everlasting burnings. It won't stop because He doesn't stop. Hell is God's own unobstructed self-revelation in all-consuming, never-diminishing, never-pacified, flaming anger toward the wicked. You will think to yourself, does He not get tired of this? And He never gets tired. God's wrath is poured out of God onto the wicked. And the wicked, when we speak of the idea of the torment and the the smoke and the consumption going up forever, the wicked are not fuel for the fire of God's wrath. The wicked are not the fuel that keeps it stoked. It's God's own righteousness which demands active justice for the wrongdoer. That is the fuel. God doesn't run out. God's not depleted. 
Hell is the everlasting indignation of the everlasting God consuming His adversaries forever and ever. Many texts, as you know, refer to hell as simply the pit. Back in Isaiah 38, it's referred to as the pit. The pit of destruction or corruption, or the NAS translates it, the pit of nothingness. The image is painted of hell as a dark cavern or a well that just eternally drops into despair. Hell consists of that brief feeling of falling that shocks you out of a nightmare, but it doesn't stop. It's not abated. It never eases off. It's extended into eternity, more real than any nightmare you've ever known. Hell is a pit. We add to that the language of the revelation, as we'll see, the language of the lake of fire. We'll see that hell's torment is likened to eternally falling and being fully enveloped on all sides by fire, by God's wrath. Wrath pushing you down, wrath meeting you up from underneath, wrath squeezing in from all sides like plunging into a lake and the water swallows up around your head. Hell will be like being immediately swallowed up from every angle of soul and body by God's anger without stopping. Now when you come up out of, out of the water of a lake... You're met with that distinctly different sensation when the air hits your skin, distinguishing the temperature of the water from the temperature of the air that sort of gives you a little break from the sensation of the water. If the air is really cold, it makes you want to get back down in the water. Hell is the very opposite. There's no rest. Day or night, there's never any, any reprieve. It's an eternal lake of fire, an eternal pit of destruction with no postponing. You, know, you can't say, can we put this off a little bit? There will be no relief for any portion of your body or your soul. Never the coolness of a breeze. Never the drop of water. Never so much as a suggestion to your mind or body in any of your senses that could even be mistaken as a reduction in the pain because God Himself will ensure and will be actively engaged in dumping His anger out forever and ever to make sure you never get the sense that there might have been a break because He said there will be no rest. And He will follow His Word. He will fulfill His promises and His threats. If there were ever a rest, you could look up and say, you're a liar, but there will be no rest. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul says that for the wicked, their end is destruction. To be destructed is to be totally unconstructed. To construct is to put together. To destruct is to tear down. Destruction. Their end is destruction, ruin, desolation. As if the, being eternally reduced to nothing and yet continuing to be by God the destroyer. Hell in this light is described as if you were repeatedly, eternally, consciously pulverized and then reconstituted in order to always be being ravaged in body and soul by a power no less than God Himself. As we read in the Psalms, 
of our Lord on the cross, wave upon wave upon wave upon wave, and it just wouldn't stop. It just won't stop for all of eternity. There is no annihilation. There is no end. There is no stop. There is no time to be served. There's no scratching the sides of the dungeon to mark the days that you've been there because it's eternity. Hell is apart from time. Hell is a state of existence under the wrath of God that never changes. If you don't belong to Christ, that's what you have to look forward to. So having seen the subjects of this judgment and the specifics of this judgment, now we can consider the strength of this judgment. And by that I mean the force of this judgment as it's being described here. What does this description of punishment do for the saints to whom this message was first given? Verse 12, Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. The strength of this judgment is motivation. It's a motivation to the saints. It's a call for endurance. We've already seen this language in chapter 13. He's already showed us our, the picture of our estate in glory in verses 1 to 5. Then he describes the judgment and he says, So endure. Hang on. Hang in there. Yes, we will suffer at the hands of evil men. But those evil men will be rendered their due reward in hell. That's what's coming for them. As we read about praying that the nations would simply have pity. That's a good prayer to pray. It's very hard for us to even be content with taking the place of the pitied. But in our nation, that might ought to be a prayer we begin to pray. Lord, would you steer the hearts of wicked men that they would at least have pity upon your people. And as we are content with being pitied, we wait, knowing our God will judge the wicked. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 1 that God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. Vengeance belongs to God. That's what he's saying. I've got it taken care of. No matter what happens in this life, if you are a Christian, verses 1 to 5 are yours. If you're not a Christian, verses 6 to 11 are yours. No matter what happens, if you're a Christian, God will see to it that we enter into glory. He will see to it that our enemies are judged. Why? Because they're first and foremost His enemies. And He will punish them as if they had inflicted punishment upon Him. Vengeance belongs to God. And so we're motivated by this to endure, to stand strong, keep the faith, keep our hearts pure, keep our hopes set on the glories that were described at the beginning of the chapter. It will be okay. As Americans, it's hard for us to even understand that we would need to hear this. 
because we've had it so easy and still have it so very easy. But there may come a time when one of the most hopeful things you can think of is that God will someday punish the wicked. The saints are here described as those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. That is, those who trust and obey. Those who hold up the light of the gospel, hold fast through affliction and persecution, and hold out unto the end. We don't need to take vengeance. Our God will vindicate us, and we, through His strength, will be able to endure to the end. He's not called us to an endurance that He Himself will not also provide the grace and the strength to accomplish. We look at His Word. What will be our end? What will be their end? God has made a promise. We can endure. And this text of judgment also, I believe, serves as a call to the unconverted. Paul said, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. We're all going to stand there. This day is coming for us all where we will be placed in our eternal dwelling. It's coming. And Paul says, since I know that, i got to warn you. Knowing the fear or the terror of the Lord, we persuade others. Could I at least persuade every one of you to at least entertain the thought that perhaps this is going to be your end. We get into this, this thing where That could never be me. Therefore, I don't need to think of such things. The fact of the matter is you were born dead in trespasses and sins. That was you. It's not that it could never be you. At least entertain the thought that perhaps you've been deceived. Do you know anyone who's ever been deceived? Do they all come across as complete imbeciles and morons? No. Smart people, wise people, diligent people can be deceived. At least entertain the thought, I might be deceived. Entertain the thought that perhaps you are the one that Jesus was talking about in Matthew 7 who will come to Him on that day and say, Lord, Lord, did I not prophesy? Did I not do many mighty works? Did I not cast out demons? Did I not go to church? Did I not do the public reading? Did I not do the call to worship? Did I not sing? Did I not make the food? Did I not catechize my children? And He's going to say, I don't know you. You did all of the right things, sure. That's not salvation. I don't know you. At least entertain the thought that it could be true. We deceive ourselves when we pretend like we, we, we were not who we were and that we can't be deceived. Entertain the thought long enough to examine yourself to see whether you are truly of the faith. And as you entertain that thought, here's how you discern. Am I truly of the faith? Well, of course I am. I. Then do you go to Matthew 7? I do this, and I do that, and I do this, and I do that. Of course it can't be me. I do, I do, I do, I do. Now, does true conversion produce works of righteousness? Absolutely. Is that the foundation of our salvation? No. 
Examine yourself to see whether you are truly of the faith. You say, perhaps to yourself, if I'm honest, that could most certainly be me. Most certainly. Who am I above anybody else? My only hope is another. Not me, but Christ who endured that for me. That's my only hope. Are you ready and willing to venture into eternity in your present condition? If you're not, let me remind you that everything the Bible says about hell, all of its horrors and torments and pain and anguish, all of the wrath of God, the man Christ Jesus has already endured it in His body on the cross of Calvary. If you will come to Him in self-denying resolve to rest in His work, He will save you from the wrath to come because He's already borne it in His body. If you are convinced of your standing before God in Christ, then look at Him again. Read the text again and thank Him for taking that upon Himself in your place. As we come to the Lord's table, as always, we fix our attention upon Christ and the crucifixion. And it's always good to ask, what happened on the cross? What happened on the cross? I would suggest to you that on the cross, Christ Jesus drank the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of His anger, that He was tormented with the fire and the sulfur of God's anger, as the holy angels, legions of angels who could have come to His rescue watched, and what I suspect was confused horror, But at the completion of the act of Christ's crucifixion, the smoke of our torment was exhausted, snuffed out, so that we might have rest someday in a place where there is no day or night. We who are the worshipers of God and of Christ, who is the image of the invisible God and who have received the mark of the Holy Spirit of God, Christ endured this for us so that we do not have to endure it. And as it was said, it would be at this point, if you're a Christian, it would be unjust. It would be wrong of God to cast us into hell because of what Christ has done. So consider Christ on the cross enduring God's wrath for sins that were yours and then we'll come to the table.